The following content is derived from the Equip Ministry of Ashland Community Church in Oldham County, Kentucky. Join us the next six weeks as we work through balancing the tensions of being primarily a citizen of heaven while also physically being a citizen of earth. We'll start by tearing down our existing and often worldly thought process around politics and building up a biblical perspective of the relationship between the church and the public square. We exist to spread a passion for the supremacy of Christ in all things for the joy of all peoples. And we pray that God's grace among us would spread beyond us to the benefit of anyone who happens to listen. For more information, please visit our website at ashlandcc.net. Thanks for listening. Welcome to week four. I have a dream. Um, it's not as noble as Martin Luther King Jr.'s, but it's a dream nonetheless. My dream is that one day we will do an equipped Wednesday semester and there will be more people at the end than there was at the beginning. That's my dream. Josh, do you share that dream with me? Yes, it would be great. We always start with a huge crowd, and then we're, I guess we're so boring and uncompelling that it just fades, and people just start dropping uh, from week to week. But Oh, thanks. Thanks. Um, it's a good way to look at it, Breck. But tonight, uh, I want to continue our talk, and we, you know, we've been... We've gone a lot of places, actually. The first night, the first week, we talked about just the way our view of politics in America, particularly the way partisanship is an enemy to thinking biblically about these matters. And then the next week, we went through and looked at the Bible and said, okay, where do we even get the idea for government from God's Word? We looked at uh, God's covenant with Noah uh, we looked at passages in the New Testament, particularly Paul's call to submit to governing authorities, and we kind of formulated what a theology of government should look like. And then last week, we talked about the role of the local church in all of this, that the local church is a politic in and of itself. The local church acts as a governing body for the people of God. Now this week, I want to touch on um, religious liberty and the belief that, you know, I'll define that a little bit later, but basically the belief that government should not try to enforce religion in any, in any way. Uh, and Where do we get that view from? What's the history of that view? Uh, why do we hold that view? Why have Baptists historically been so tied to that view? Uh, so we're going to explore all of that, and then next week is going to be the practical week. Next week, we're going to look at how can I be a faithful Christian engaged in politics in the world in which I live. And so that'll be next week, and then the last week will be questions. Uh, so we've, this is week four of six, uh, so we're, we're over the hump, we're... Uh, more than halfway through now, and this week we're going to talk about religious liberty. Uh, so I want to pray for us first. Um, hopefully by the time we get to the end, I have a video that I want to show you. Here's the questions if you want to text questions. Um, this is the number that will not be on the screen again. Um, so if, copy it down and text questions to that number, and those will be the questions that I respond to on the sixth week. 
Um, but let's pray together. Uh, Lord, we just thank you for your goodness and kindness and mercy that you show us every day in Jesus. Um, Lord, I want to lift up uh, several families in our church, the Coluses and the Weirs who have uh, sick babies, uh, sick children that uh, have the RSV virus and have been admitted to the hospital. And Lord, we just pray um, for these children for health and recovery and rest and God, we pray that they would be cared for and healed. And God, we continue to pray for all the members of our church, um, whatever they're struggling with. There's sicknesses going around, there's, there's cancer and, and, and all of these things. And, and Lord, we know that you are good, you're in control. And Lord, we look to you and we ask you, Lord, to, um, Lord, to preserve and protect and grow, grow our faith. Lord, help us to find rest in Jesus through all of this. And I pray tonight, Lord, that you would help us to think biblically about politics so that we can live faithfully in the world where you've placed us with Jesus as our number one allegiance. And Lord, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to talk to you uh, tonight about a guy by the name of Roger Williams. Any of you ever heard that name before? Heard the name Roger Williams? Um, he's not a household name. Roger Williams was born in England around 1603. And if you know anything about history, particularly history in England, 1603 was a very tumultuous time. So he was born into a very... Um, a lot of conflict going on in England, particularly around the issue of religion and what religion England would be. Uh, you see, this all went back to 1527. Before 1527, England, just like the rest of the Christian world, was Catholic, Roman Catholic. But in 1527, the king of England, Henry VIII, decided that he needed a new wife. And he decided he needed a new wife because the wife that he was currently married to um, wasn't giving him a male heir. And so she wasn't suitable because he needed a male heir. So King Henry VIII went to the Pope and said, I need you to annul my marriage. And the Pope said, I cannot do that. You must stay married. You don't have a legitimate reason to do that. And so King Henry VIII, and at this time, the Protestant Reformation had started in other nations, particularly in places like Germany, places like France. And King Henry VIII said, fine, if you will not annul my marriage, we will break. England will break from Rome and he declared himself the supreme head of the Church of England. From that moment on, England was, well not from that moment on, but right there at that moment, England became a Protestant nation. The Church of England was their official church, and the King of England was the supreme head of the church, not the Pope. Now, Henry VIII could annul his marriage and marry who he wanted to, which is what he did. But here's the thing, the Church of England, as much as it officially broke from Rome, still felt very Romish, you know? I mean, 
they still had the liturgies. They still had the, the vestments and the ceremonies and all the things that a lot of the other Protestants in the world at this time were forsaking these things because they were looking at the Bible and saying, you know, we're not going to do these extra biblical things, but Henry kept a lot of them. And so you had this pocket of people at that time in England that came to be known as dissenters. And what dissenters were were Protestants who believed that the, the Reformation in England had not gone far enough. They were still too close to Rome, and there needed to be more done. There needed to be more Reformation. They needed to be more Protestant. They needed to break more fully with all of these man-made traditions. Well, Henry died. And Henry's daughter, by the name of Mary, who came to be known as Bloody Mary, ascended to the throne. And Mary was a Catholic. So what do you think Mary did? First day in office. We're coming on back to Catholicism. And so she began, and this is how she got her nickname Bloody Mary, she began rounding up her enemies, rounding up dissenters, rounding up Protestants, and martyring them. Bloody Mary. Mary's half-sister Elizabeth succeeded Mary. Mary didn't live very long. Mary died. Mary's half-sister Elizabeth was a Protestant. So she, after Mary restored Catholicism, restored Protestantism. But here again, she's trying to restore it in a way where there's this middle ground between Anglicans and the Puritans and the dissenters. And so people weren't satisfied with her. She's eventually replaced by James I of Scotland in 1603, which was the same year that Roger Williams was born. Now the Puritans in England, the, the dissenters, the Puritans, now it's not all Puritans um, would be dissenters. So you, there's all these terms and it's kind of confusing, but a Puritan was someone who wanted to stay in the Church of England but wanted to purify it more. And dissenters were one who were willing to function outside of the church and kind of do their own thing in homes and, and hiding in barns, right? So you've got all these different groups. And when James I from Scotland ascends the throne, the Puritans are excited because James I is from Scotland. And what is happening in Scotland? Well, in Scotland, there is a strong Presbyterian Reformation, and they're hoping that he is going to come and he is going to bring that same flavor to England but he disappointed them until James's son, Charles, comes to the throne. Now, all of this, you're like, what is going on? But the point that I want you to see is that depending on who the leader was, that was the religion at the time of England. And so you've got all of this turning, and it's this way, and it's that way. And it all culminates finally when James's son, Charles, comes to the throne. Charles marries a Catholic. And so guess what? We're going to favor Catholicism again. And the Puritans weren't happy. And so an open conflict begins in the 1630s between the Puritans and the Royalists, those who were supporting Charles. Charles ends up being killed in war. The king is killed, put to death. And the Puritans take over the government under Oliver Cromwell. And Roger Williams is growing up in this context with all of this tumult, all of this war, all of this bloodshed. You don't believe like we believe. This is what our government needs to, to push. This is what we need to institute. And all of this is happening. And all along, people like Roger Williams, 
who was a Puritan, they're looking across the ocean at this new pristine land called America. And they're thinking, we can get away from all of this and we can finally go to this new land where we can worship according to our conscience because even though we're officially still under the reign of the king of England, they don't really care what you do over there. And so these shiploads of Puritans are coming over to the new world in hopes that they can establish the opportunity to worship according to their conscience. And so Roger Williams arrives in 1631 to the Massachusetts Bay Colony. The Massachusetts Bay Colony was led by Puritans. They believed that they had come to this new land in obedience to God. They were establishing a national covenant with God, and they were setting up a city on a hill. They wanted the whole entire world to see what a model politics, what a model government, what a model community would look like when it's founded upon the truth of God's Word. And so that was their goal. Roger Williams arrives. When Roger Williams arrives, people have high hopes for him. He begins to be asked to teach. But as he begins to teach, people begin seeing that Roger Williams is a little too radical. You see, Roger Williams started articulating positions that would have been considered political treason. Roger Williams was calling the church in the Massachusetts Bay Colony to formally separate from the Church of England. And that's not what the Puritans wanted to do. They were not separatists in that way. And so there's immediately conflict. This radical has come here and he's preaching these dangerous ideas. And not only is Roger Williams preaching these dangerous ideas, he's also petitioning citizens in the Massachusetts Bay Colony to support his his decision to break with the Church of England. You see, Roger Williams believed that the church should be comprised only of those who make profession explicit profession of faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, Roger Williams rejected infant baptism. He rejected the view that everyone born in a geographic location are automatically members of the church. Roger Williams believed, much like we do, that the church should be regenerate. To earn a living, Roger Williams begins operating a trade post with Native Americans. So he begins meeting Native American tribes. And and through the course of this, he begins to develop profound respect and deep friendships with Native Americans. That's an important point. Because through these interactions, he begins to, to formulate new ideas about how to establish a government on the earth that makes room for people of all kinds of different religious persuasions. Through these interactions, he begins to believe in common morality, not religious uniformity as the proper basis for a stable society. You don't have to all be Christians for a society to be stable. Roger Williams began to believe that Native Americans are capable They have the dignity. They're created in the image of God. They can live in a society with us and still not have the same religious practices as as us, and we should be able to tolerate them. Well, this was an extremely radical idea. So he begins advocating this position, that civil government has no right to govern matters of religion and and conscience. And the authorities that be in the Massachusetts Bay Colony banish him from the colony. You're going to have to go. 
you are stirring up all kinds of trouble. The problem was it was the dead of winter. And Roger Williams was sick. He was on a sick bed. And so they said, okay, we will let you stay until spring because it was winter and he was sick. But you need to be quiet. In the spring, you've got to get out of here. Well, the problem with that is that Roger Williams would not quit teaching his views. And so the authorities that be decided that at the first opportunity, they were going to send him back to England. Roger Williams finds out that that's their plan. And so in the dead of winter, Roger Williams takes off by himself into the New England wilderness. In the dead of winter... And only survived because of the help of his Native American friends that he had made by operating a trade post with them. He keeps going until he founds his own settlement. Providence, Rhode Island. You can go to Providence, Rhode Island today. Roger Williams founded Providence, Rhode Island as a haven for religious dissidents. It guaranteed in Providence, Rhode Island, that everyone who lived there would have freedom of conscience. That you can worship however you want as long as everyone agrees to civility and to submitting to the laws of the land. As long as there is a common morality, you do not have to conform to any type of religion. He continued advocating his views from Rhode Island. You can see a picture of... The, the bottom picture right there is a picture of the royal charter that he, origin, that he uh, eventually gets from the king of England. Permission. Um, well, actually, he doesn't get it from the king. He gets it from the, the Protestants, who at that time were over the British government, Oliver Cromwell's government. But that's the royal charter that allowed him. So Providence Rhode Island becomes like a test case. It becomes like the first nation... not the nation, but the first society in the Western world that guarantees religious liberty for its citizens. Meanwhile, he's John Cotton's the guy on the top. He's the past one of the pastors in Boston in the Massachusetts Bay Colony. Him and Roger Williams have this pamphlet war where they're writing treatises back and forth to each other. And you can read them today. And, And in one of those one of those treatises um, called The Bloody Tenet of Persecution, Roger Williams wrote this, It is the will and command of God that since the coming of His Son, the Lord Jesus, a permission of the most pagan, Jewish, Turkish, or anti-Christian consciences and worship be granted to all men in all nations and countries. He said, It is God's will that post-Jesus, people in the world have complete liberty to worship however they will without government interference. That was William's position. At the heart of his argument, he believed that each person possesses a moral conscience and the state has no jurisdiction over that conscience. The state cannot tell me how I should worship on Sunday. That is not their domain. He said the magistrate's sword is impotent to sway the conscience. You cannot make a person a worshiper by holding a sword to them. You cannot enforce religion in that way. 
Instead, he said, the Spirit of God works by means of the Word of God to change hearts and grant repentance. So what do you think about that? That's the doctrine of religious freedom. Religious freedom basically has two components. The first one, religious truth cannot be coerced. The second one, because religious truth cannot be coerced, individuals should be free to pursue religion according to the guidance of their own conscience. We leave it to the church to proclaim the gospel to convince people. It does no good for the state to come in Because as soon as the state gets involved, you're not making genuine converts, you're making fake Christians. And so that's what Roger Williams believed, and that's what Baptists have believed, we're going to get to that in a moment, from the very beginning. Williams, you see, was not the first to advocate these views. He was, however, integral to the spread of these ideas in the new world. In fact, I wonder how how religious liberty would fare if not for people like Roger Williams bringing these ideas over here. You see, some people respond to this and they say, religious liberty, prove that in the Bible. Look at Israel. Israel didn't have religious liberty, right? You have these views. And so a lot of people argue that the the idea of religious liberty doesn't come from Christianity, it comes from the Enlightenment, Now, what is the Enlightenment? The Enlightenment was a philosophical movement in the late 1600s and early 1700s that exalted reason above revelation. And so the Enlightenment said, hey, quit believing in these dogmas. Quit believing these things that have been handed down to you from generation to generation. You have been given a mind. You are able to reason on your own, and you can reach truth independently of any other authority based on reason alone. That was the doctrine of the Enlightenment. And so it was natural. Enlightenment thinkers supported religious liberty. Of course the government shouldn't enforce people to worship in any way. Every person is free to think for themselves. Each man, each woman should think on their own, should reason their way to the truth. Enlightenment thinkers, maybe you've heard of some of these names. Here's some examples. John Locke, Thomas Hobbes, Adam Smith, Immanuel Kant. Those would have all been philosophers of the Enlightenment. But here's something really interesting. You want to know who was really influenced by Enlightenment thought? All of the founders of the United States of America. Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, John Adams, James Madison. All of them were supporters of religious liberty, not because they were Christians. (laughs) They were supporters of religious liberty because they believed and drank deeply from the Enlightenment. They believe that if the individual is capable of discovering truth on his own, then the government should never coerce or enforce one particular religion over another. And so many people, when we make this case for religious liberty, say, you are just simply advocating enlightenment thought. This isn't Christian. There's nothing Christian about religious liberty. And I want to argue tonight 
that that is false. That this belief in religious liberty preceded the Enlightenment. In fact, it goes all the way back to the very beginning of the church. In fact, we find this view advocated as early as the 3rd century. The 3rd century by a guy named Tertullian who was a Christian apologist in North Africa between he lived between 155 and 220 okay so we're talking a, a person who preceded the enlightenment by 1500 years and tertullian wrote this it is only just and a privilege inherent in human nature that every person should be able to worship according to his own convictions. The religious practice of one person neither harms nor helps another. It is not part of religion to coerce religious practice, for it is by choice, not coercion, that we should be led to religion. What's going on? What's going on is that it's not enlightenment thought that's introducing the idea of religious liberty to the world. It's the gospel. Because we believe, we have confidence in the Spirit of God to change hearts. We don't have to rely on the government. We don't need government power for the church to grow. We believe in the power of, of the gospel. We believe that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. The earliest Christians made a connection between the gospel of Jesus and government policy. If the heart must be made new, they said, what role could government possibly play? It can't. It can only make things worse. Baptist, which is what we are. So you might be here tonight and you're like, I'm not a Baptist. Well, if you're a member of this church, you are. Sorry. <laughs> you are. You're a Baptist now, whether you like it or not, right? You're, you're at a Baptist church, and Baptists have historically always, always, this is one of the most universal distinctives of what it means to be a Baptist. You know, you tell me, what does it mean to be a Baptist? We believe that you have to be a Christian to be a member of the church. We believe that you only baptize people who have first repented and believed the gospel, right? We believe that the Bible is God's inerrant word. We believe in the exclusivity of Christ. We go through these positions and we say all Baptists have believed these things. Well, I, right up there with that list, all Baptists have historically believed in religious liberty. And it's all tied together. Uh, an American historian by the, uh, well, I, I, you know, it doesn't matter what his name is, but he wrote, in such a diverse community of faith, he's talking about American Baptists, the one political thread tying Baptists together was the greatest gift they believed the American Revolution bequeathed to the church, religious liberty. Roger Williams, now, I didn't tell you this part about Roger Williams. Roger Williams believed baptistically. But Roger Williams, I would not call a Baptist because Roger Williams would never submit to a church. Roger Williams came to believe that all the churches were so corrupt that he could never be a member of one. And so he just stayed away from the church. And you can't be a Baptist if you're not a part of a local community that holds you accountable. So though he had many Baptist convictions, he wasn't properly a Baptist. 
But the, one of the first Baptists in history, who's credited with being one of the first Baptists in history, is a guy by the name of Thomas Hillwes. Thomas Hillwes lived from 1575 to 1616 in England. So the same period of time that we just described, this tumultuous time in England. And Thomas Hillwes went with a guy named John Smith, and they went to the Netherlands because they wanted to fi- find a place where they could practice their faith without being persecuted. They end up baptizing each other. That was really controversial. But he comes back to England, and he founds the first Baptist church on English soil in 1612. And then he wrote a book called A Short Declaration of the Mystery of Iniquity. You can see the title page. A Short Declaration of the Mystery of Iniquity. And this was the first book in the English language to argue for complete religious liberty. And here's how bold he was. He doesn't just write this book in England where he knows he's going to get persecuted for it. But he, he writes a letter of devotion to the king. This, this book, he presents a copy to the king of England. And he, he tells the king that the king should allow his subjects to worship freely. In fact, in the book he said, and by the king at this time was James, who was a Protestant, but he said to James that whatever power you possess over your subjects' consciences, the Catholic Queen Mary rightly enjoyed as well during her reign. So whatever power you think you have to enforce your view of religion, he said, the Catholic Queen Mary, who was killing all the Protestants, had the same exact power. He writes all this to him. He says in the book, he argues that the powers of the earthly sword should be separated from the powers of the spiritual sword. The earthly sword is reserved for earthly power, and the spiritual sword of the Word of God, the Bible, is reserved for spiritual power. He alludes to Matthew twenty-two twenty-one, and he reasons that if Christ had commanded his subjects to give earthly rulers what belonged rightfully to them, the king should freely grant God what belongs to him. Because what did Jesus tell his followers? He said to, to pay to Caesar what is owed to Caesar. And so Thomas Hewis tells the king of England, well, if Jesus was willing to give you the power that you deserve, then you need to give him the power that he deserves. And then this, tell me if this sounds anything like Roger Williams' quote we read earlier. He said, let them be heretics, Turks, Jews, or whatsoever. It does not appertain to the earthly power to punish them in the least measure. Even if they're heretics, he says the king has no right to punish them. Right? That's not your job. You don't punish heresy. Well, all Thomas Hulis got for his efforts was to be locked up in Newgate Prison until his early death in the year 1616. Baptists have been killed, persecuted, beaten, imprisoned, arrested, despised, belittled, mocked, scorned because of this view from the very beginning. The people who believe the same exact things we believe have not been tolerated by those in power. In the United States, this view has always been held firmly by Baptist pastors, ministers, theologians, thinkers, 
two of the most famous uh, outspoken Baptists who advocated this view in the New World in the United States was a guy by the name of Isaac Backus and another guy by the name of John Leland, who we talked about on the very first week. They were both instrumental in leading the Church of England to be disestablished in Virginia and the uh, Congregationalist Church to be disestablished in New England after the war with England for independence. The same Baptist historian I quoted earlier said, indeed, it would be no exaggeration to suggest that behind every article for religious liberty in the national and state constitutions in the early republic, there were Baptists. Think about that with me. Thirteen colonies. We, we'd like to think that like all the colonies were united, but the thirteen colonies basically functioned as thirteen different governments. <laughs> They were basically 13 different nations, and each one of them had their own charters and their own constitutions. And in every one of those colonies, there were Baptists willing to give their lives to secure religious liberty for those citizens. The reason why, we, listen, we would not have religious liberty in the United States of America the way we do without the advocacy of Baptists. From the very beginning, we've been willing to suffer for this view because we believe that it's what the Bible teaches. Now, that's what I want to do the rest of the night. All of that was historical prologue. You say, that's great. It's great that Baptists have always believed this. Where does this come from in the Bible? Where do you get this theologically? Because at the end of the day, church, and you know this is true, it doesn't matter what our forefathers have always believed. If it's not rooted in God's Word, then we need to get rid of it, don't we? And so we have to ask that question. Why were Baptists so adamant about religious liberty? One of the reasons is because they were always persecuted. (laughs) I mean, Baptists were the ones not willing to, to set up a church. You couldn't preach without a license. John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, wrote Pilgrim's Progress in prison. What was his crime? As he was in prison on two different stints of six years? 12 years of his life where he's got a wife and children at home. But he writes one of the most brilliant books in the history of Western civilization, The Pilgrim's Progress. But what did he do? What was his crime? He preached without a license. That's what he did. He was a Baptist, by the way. And the reason why we've always believed this is because we believe, and, and hear me out, this is, this is important, Theologically, we believe in regenerate church membership. What do I mean by that when I say regenerate? That's a fancy theological word, but don't, don't let it... It's not that hard to understand. Regenerate means that the Holy Spirit has done a work in our heart to cause us to be born again. Where do we get that from? We get that from all over the Bible. But let's just think about John 3 and Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. What does Jesus say to Nicodemus? I tell you, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God, right? He says that to Nicodemus. And Nicodemus says, what am I supposed to go into my mother's womb and come out again? And Jesus says, no, no, no. I'm talking about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit blows wherever He wishes, right? Jesus Because the Spirit and wind, He uses an imagery there. The Spirit does what He wants. The Spirit convicts hearts. The Spirit causes us to become new. Paul uses the language of a new creation. If anyone is in Christ, He is a new creation. We're a new man. We've experienced the new birth. 
And we believe, we have always believed, church, Baptists have always believed that you can't be a member of the church unless you've experienced that regeneration. Now, are we 100% always right in judging with someone's experienced regeneration? No. Right? I wish. I wish I could go to Walmart and buy test strips and, and place them on everybody's tongue and it turns blue if you're regenerated. Wouldn't that be great? That'd be wonderful. You know, there's no, there's no foolproof 100% way to determine that. But we believe that the Spirit produces fruit in people's life. We believe that people who are regenerated are going to believe the truth. That you're going to be able to give an account that you have indeed believed the gospel. You understand what the gospel is. You understand grace. It's not by works, right? You're seeking to live your life in obedience to Christ. A regenerated person, after all, will want to live in obedience to Christ because Jesus is Lord. So we have those conversations. That's why we have membership interviews. A guy by the name of Jeremiah Bell Jeter wrote a book called Baptist Principles Reset back in the 1800s, and he starts that book with this sentence. A spiritual or regenerate church membership lies at the foundation of all Baptist peculiarities. I can't say that word very good tonight. He says, on this point, Baptists and the few small sects that agree with them differ from the whole Christian world. You hear me? This view separates us from just about every other tradition in the history of the church. You have to be believe the gospel to be a church member. All of our church confessions uphold this view. The Second London Baptist Confession, or the 1689 that we hold here, defines the visible church as all persons throughout the world professing the faith of the gospel and obedience unto God by Christ according unto it. Now what's interesting is that we know that that confession was borrowing its language from another confession written by the Presbyterians called the Westminster Confession of Faith. And you can, you can learn a lot by comparing the two because you can see which words they chose to omit. Well, the Westminster Confession of Faith says that same thing, but then it says at the end, together with their children. <laughs> and the Baptist said, uh, select, delete. We're not putting that in our confession because that's not in the Bible. Because that's not what the Bible says. The Bible doesn't say you're a part of the visible church when you're a believer and regenerate and your children. That's not what the Bible says. This, this view, church, comes from, it doesn't come from proof texting the Bible. It comes from our understanding of the way the covenants fit together in Scripture. Let me explain this to you. So here we're going to get a little bit theological and I just want you to bear with me, okay? So people who believe in infant baptism, let's, let's just pick on the Presbyterians. Presbyterians believe that there are two covenants in the Bible. The Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And they believe, however, that both the Old Covenant, so you think Old Covenant is the covenant that came through Abraham, through Moses, through David, that all of that was the Old Covenant, okay? And then Jesus comes and he brings the new covenant. Presbyterians believe that both of those covenants are the same covenant of grace. They're just in two different administrations. 
So in other words, the old covenant people are operating under the new covenant. It's just under the old covenant. It's the same covenant of grace. It's just a different administration. It's just got different paraphernalia associated with it. Well, what's the consequence of this view? The consequence of this view is that if the old covenant allowed the children of Israel to be a part of the covenant, and if the new covenant is just a different administration of that same covenant, then we too must allow the children of believers to be a part of the covenant. Well, Baptists have always said that's not what the Bible teaches about the covenants. It's not just a new administration of the same covenant. The Bible says it's a new covenant. That it's not like that covenant. That's what Paul says. Not like the covenant that I made. That's what Jeremiah 31 says. So let's open our Bibles. 45 minutes in. Jeremiah 31. Baptist covenant theology sees all of those covenants the covenant made with Abraham the covenant made with Moses the covenant made with David all of those covenants are not the same as the new covenant they are however typologically pointing forward to the new covenant that's different Jeremiah 31 beginning in verse 31 behold the days are coming declares the Lord when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. It's not going to be like that covenant. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. That's regeneration. In this covenant, all the members of the covenant are going to have new hearts. It's not going to be like the old covenant. But not only that. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. Everybody in this covenant is going to know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. That's not what God was doing in the old covenant. This is a new thing that God does in Jesus Christ. There's three things He says He's going to do. He says, first, I'm going to regenerate my people by writing my law on their hearts. Ezekiel 36 points to the same promise, except Ezekiel tells us that it's by His Spirit that He's going to do this. Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27 says, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules you under the old covenant you didn't obey my rules you didn't obey my statutes in the new covenant in Jesus Christ my spirit is going to be in you and you are going to live for me you are going to obey me because Christ is going to dwell in you second 
Jeremiah prophesied that God's people under the new covenant would all know God. We would all have a relationship with God. Everybody in this covenant. Third, all the members of this covenant would have their sins completely forgiven. You know, Paul makes an argument in Galatians that not everybody under the old covenant were true sons of Abraham. Not everyone were regenerated under the old covenant. There were members of that covenant who did not know the grace of God, who were just part of it as a, as a race, as a nation. But Paul says that's not the way that works in Jesus. Everybody in this covenant has experienced the forgiveness of God. This is where we get our views that we should only allow members into the church who profess repentance and faith. This is why we reject infant baptism. Here's the reality, church, and where all this is going and how it fits to what I've been talking about earlier. If you believe that church membership is only for those who are regenerated, who have believed the gospel then there's no way you can have a view of government that includes people who aren't regenerated into the church. Does that make sense? You can't have a government enforcing citizens who haven't believed the gospel to pretend that they're Christians. We have to have people in the church who actually have the Spirit because that's who the covenant's for. And that's what the covenant is doing. Jesus came to do something new. Listen to me. If parents are not authorized to violate even the consciences of their own children under the new covenant by administering baptism before they're able to believe, much less can a government overrule the consciences of citizens by enforcing the worship of God. Does that make sense? We don't believe in parental coercion. Right? I mean, if I, if I could make my children Christians, you wouldn't have seen me waiting till they're teenagers to baptize them. Right? I would have done it at the very beginning. I can't coerce that. The Spirit must do a work in them. At the same time, the government can't coerce it either. So we depend on the church. That's not the role that God has given government, as we've been saying every week. He's given that role to the church. So our defense of religious liberty rests on three core theological convictions. Number one, our view of human nature. What does Genesis 1 tell us? When God created us, He created us in what? In His image. He has made every human being an image bearer, which means that every single human being has dignity and worth and is an accountable moral agent before God. Every human being. In Romans 2.15, Paul tells us that, that there is a natural law that God has put embedded into creation that is supposed to guide us towards truth, but we suppress it with our sin. We stand before God on our own. No one's going to be able to stand before God and say, I wasn't a Christian because the nation that I grew up in didn't enforce Christianity upon me. You understand? We are all responsible moral agents created in God's image. That's a key understanding of that's a key component of why we believe in religious freedom. But here's a second reason. So the first one is our view of human nature that we're creating the image of God. The second one is our view of human sin. I'll let John Leland speak to this one. 
This is what Leland said. A government would only be qualified to rule over the consciences of its citizens in matters of religion if those rulers were infallible in wisdom and goodness. Do you see how that makes sense? A government can't rule over the consciences of its citizens unless that government is infallible. Have you ever seen an infallible government? Do you remember what I was telling you earlier about all the kings and queens of England and how they were violent persecutors and it was all about power dynamics? One of them changed the entire policy of religion and the whole domain of his kingdom because he wanted a divorce from his wife? Do you want those people ruling over your consciences and telling you how you have to practice your worship? Do you want Joe Biden ruling over your conscience and telling you how you need to worship? Did you want Donald Trump doing it? I hope you say no equally to both of them. We do not want the government telling us how to worship. It's not their role. There's sin in play in the government. There's sin in play in the church, but thankfully the Lord has not left us without His protection and presence, at least, in the church. Leland knew history well enough to understand that government rule over the church never ended well. <laughs> it never has. It's never worked. He understood that the desire for pure worship was often superseded by the corrupt ambitions of rulers. But here's the third reason. Our view of the gospel. We believe that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes we do not need government mandate to make people Christians. We just need to unleash the truth of the gospel. So the government gets out of our way and protects our freedom to proclaim the gospel so that the church can go about our mission. That's the government's role. I want to show you a clip if Dave can pull it up. Dave, this is the test. Ah, look at there. Is the sound going to work? I couldn't say it any better, so I thought I'd let you hear it from Russ Moore. That was at the 2016 Southern Baptist Convention. There's always fireworks at the Southern Baptist Convention. If you ever want to go, come with me. It's a lot of fun. So this may naturally lead, and yeah, we've got just a couple seconds. This may naturally lead to the question, all right, are you saying that there should be a wall of separation between the church and the state? Because that's the imagery that Thomas Jefferson used, actually, in a letter that he wrote on New Year's Day, 1802, to the Danbury Baptist Association in Connecticut, where he affirmed the long-held Baptist position, and I quote, that religion is a matter which lies solely between man and his God. And Jefferson went on to celebrate the non-establishment clause of the First Amendment to the United States Constitution. He said this was a revolutionary concession that Baptists had worked tirelessly to achieve. And then he said this, he added that that clause thus built a wall of separation between church and state. And now we have that letter, that phrase being taken out of that context and used to say religion should stay out of the public square. 
There's a wall of separation. So you keep your religion on that side of the wall, and we'll keep our politics on this side of the wall. And so politics is supposed to be completely secular, completely not tied to religion at all. And that is the quote that is used to justify this position. And I want to argue that that's not what I'm arguing today. I am saying, yes, there needs to be separation between the institutional power of government and the institutional power of the church. But I am not saying, and we should never say, that there needs to be separation so that there is no influence of religion into the world and realm of politics. That is impossible. Because this is what we've been saying from week one. There's no such thing as a public square that is devoid of religion. Right? If you take Christianity out of governing authority, right? If if you say Andy Bashir's the governor of Kentucky and we're so thankful that he, and and I think he professes to be a Christian, so this is just me making it up. We say we're so thankful that at least he's not a Christian so he can govern effectively. That would not be true. Because there's never been a human being who does not have religious beliefs. And so governing is always going to be inserting religion into the public square. As Christians, we should want Christianity to influence the decisions being made in government. We should. We should be unapologetic about it. Absolutely we do. But that doesn't mean that we're, we're opening the door for the government to come in officially and tell the church what to do. You see? I would argue that the wall of separation, if you want to use that metaphor, goes one way. <laughs> it, keeps, it keeps the government from intruding upon the affairs of the church. But as citizens' church, as Christian citizens, now, as an institution, the church, we're not going to say that we should enforce Sabbath laws or things like that, right? But as Christians, we should be in the public square advocating for Christian-defined justice and righteousness and life and liberty. And we want human beings to flourish. And the only, you know how people are going to flourish? When they, when they give credence to the reality of the fact that God has created the world and His laws are right. His laws are what's good for us. He didn't just give us His laws on a whim. This is how human beings thrive and flourish. So next week, we are going to talk about what that looks like. How do... So this is the question for next week. What does it look like for Christian citizens like us to live in a world like the one we live in, in the midst of a government... And how do we advocate for justice and laws that promote human flourishing so that the church can fulfill its mission to make disciples? Advocating for those laws is separate from the mission of the church, right? We advocate for those laws, but we know that those laws aren't going to make anybody a Christian. We want people to thrive. We want people to stay alive. We want churches to be free to send out missionaries. So what does it look like in the world? And those, that's where the rubber meets the road, right? That's where we get all these new particular issues. And you can think of some. 
What does it mean for public school systems when the, the, the school system is advocating transgenderism in libraries, right? How do we respond to that as Christians? There's all kinds of things that are real-world issues that we've got to wrestle with, and none of those questions are easy. But I would argue, regardless of where we land on those individual questions, what we've talked about for the last four weeks is the foundation that we reason from, right? That whatever we decide on a specific issue, and on some of those issues, listen, on some of those issues, there's room for us to have different nuanced positions. A lot of those issues, there's not this one clear Christian obvious answer. Now, a lot of them there are. You know, like, I mean, obviously, uh, an issue like abortion is pretty clear-cut. But we've got to think through that, and we're going to start, at least try to do that a little bit together starting next week. And so I kind of anticipate next week the questions start rolling in a little bit more. Um, and that's fine. I want you to send those questions in. Please send those questions in, because week six... If not, we're just going to sit here and stare at each other for an hour, not have anything to say. All right, let me pray for us. Um, Lord, I